0: You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Welcome to another episode of Marketing News Canada. I am thrilled to introduce you to Kevin Indig, who leads SEO at Shopify, which is very, very cool. He is also the creator of the Growth Memo Newsletter. So if you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you subscribe. We'll put a link in the show notes. He's worked in the past with companies like eBay, Eventbrite, Samsung, Pinterest, and many others. Kevin, such a thrill to have you on the show today.
1: Darren, it's great to be here.
0: I'm yeah. pumped. It's awesome. And Kevin, we were talking offline, and I just got to say, those that are listening, Shopify, we've had him on the show before. We've had other folks from the Shopify world on the show before. We are big fans. And especially right now, when this show airs, Shopify is supporting an amazing initiative called the Pow Wow Pitch, which is, in a sense, if you've seen Dragon's Den or Shark Tank, it is the indigenous Dragon's Den. And Shopify, amongst doing many other things, is supporting indigenous entrepreneurs right across our country through the Pow Wow Pitch. And it's awesome. So Kevin, you're part of a really amazing company. Thanks. It's so
1: it's so kind of you to bring that up, Darian. And I just want to play back that these things are important to us. And it's not just something that we say, like we really we dedicated a full all hands, you know, to the indigenous entrepreneurial company, and we brought up some like tough topics. It wasn't all like you know happy, fun, positive vibes. You know, there was some, there was a lot of real talk too. And at the same time, it motivates us tremendously, right? So for everybody who does not work at Shopify, we hear these things when we have these conversations, when we see these videos.
0: For us, it's an extreme motivator. So thanks again, Darren, for bringing that up. Yeah. And I think what's so neat about Shopify is that it is like to jump from making cat sweaters in my basement to Amazon, even that they they say it's an easy jump, but that's a very difficult jump to go from, you know, back in the day to set up WooCommerce or to set up an e-commerce back in the nineties. Like those are huge jumps. Whereas Shopify is literally, I, you know, less than an hour, less than an hour. You've got your cat sweaters in your basement, you've launched an e-commerce store and it's amazing. Yeah, it is fascinating how this enables people
1: across the whole world to build their businesses and create jobs, right, and have this whole impact on their communities as well. To me, joining Shopify, I just joined in, in December of 2020, so it's a bit over half a year ago. And I joined from a from a job that I was very happy at previously. You know, I didn't join because I was looking. Uh, I joined because it was so in line with my mission, and it all comes back to giving people opportunities, right? Technology as an equalizer, enabling people to start businesses, whatever part of the world they're in, whatever zip code they live in, you know? And that's not, it hasn't been the same or that has not been the situation for hundreds, maybe a thousand years. You know, it used to be that the zip code that you are born in decides your fate, your chances are much, much higher in a certain zip code to be successful than others. And I think we have a real chance to democratize that and create equality of opportunity.
0: Yeah, and, and I want to mention TikTok, who has been a huge catalyst to entrepreneurs starting businesses. You know, from from sharing their creation story to their ideas. You know, people losing jobs and then starting these kind of side hustles, becoming their main hustle. But then everyone who who does that eventually needs a shopping cart. They need a shopping enabler, and they go to Shopify. And which is so cool that it was made in Canada, born in Canada. You know, here in Ottawa, Ontario, which is so neat. And so then comes along SEO. And I want to talk about SEO because I think for a lot of listeners that are agency side, brand side, I think even myself, we've all had that bad experience with an SEO person. You know, the search engine optimizer who said, man, I've got this oil. It's really special. I got it from these snakes in my backyard. I'm going to rub it all over your website. And don't worry, in six months, you'll be the first page of Google. You know, so why do you think this role of SEO folks has been so tarnished? Yeah, it's, it's a
1: very... Very important point. First of all, I see several reasons. One of the reasons is that this profession is not certified or, or regulated in any way. Anybody can call themselves SEO, yeah. just like anybody can sell snake soil. And so you have a lot of bad actors or people who just want to make money, right? And, and want to want to exploit that weakness of the profession. The second reason is very closely connected to that, which is that SEO is a changing profession changes relatively fast because it is so tied to the Google algorithm and most other search engines follow Google's lead, right? So when we speak about SEO, we mostly speak about SEO for Google. That changes over time, right? Especially over the last five years, we've seen acceleration of change because Google uses a lot more machine learning and artificial intelligence. And it's always been a certain like black box reverse engineering, right? At no point do we ever know the full Google algorithm. There was always this aspect of like, we know you know, maybe like 70, 80% or maybe even less and the rest we'll we'll figure out by trial and error. That's how this whole thing came to be. You know, 10 years ago when I started in SEO, when I learned this craft, it was still like, it was more like hacking, you know? It was like, oh, there's this like group of people. Nobody knows exactly where they are. They make a lot of money. They know like how to... Game the search results, and you need to pay them a lot, and then they will help you. Know, it's like it's a whole like mysterious kind of thing, and that changed. And now it's, a, I would say, it's a relatively white hat profession, right?
0: Quick thing, Kevin. Those that don't know the term white hat, explain white hat versus black hat. Those yeah. that are kind of. Yeah,
1: it's it's an important point actually. So white hat basically means you do SEO within the official Google guidelines. Black hat means you're outside of the official guidelines or violate these guidelines. And so it is something that Google is very bullish on. For example, we know that hyperlinks or links from other sites to your site have a very big impact on SEO. But paying for these links, for example, is against the Google guidelines. And Google has put these guidelines out there because so many people in the past have tried to game the search results. And so Google goes even a step further. They might even punish you or your website if they see that you clearly go against their official guidelines that can mean a lot less traffic. And so it used to be that that SEOs try to exploit loopholes in Google's algorithm. And today that's not the case anymore at all. You can try that. There might be small things here and there that, that still work. There's like a like a five percent of secret sauce that, that the best SEOs still have, but that will not change the game. That will not help a company go from $100,000 in ARR to like 10 million. You know, that's, that's not the skill that we're talking about.
0: And explain that acronym right there,
1: ARR. Yeah, annual recurring revenue. So as yes. a business, you know, it's one of the guiding metrics that a lot of them are looking at
0: is like basically how much recurring revenue do you make in a year? And of course, you want to increase it over time. And how much does that revenue get? Let's use the term in Google Goals, like how many of those conversions are happening because of organic traffic versus say paid traffic or referring traffic?
1: It varies from business to business. And e-commerce, what we generally see is an impact of 50% or more from organic traffic and then 40 to 50% on from paid channels like Google Ads or ads on TikTok, Instagram, and so on. That can of course vary from business to business. There might be some where you have a 25% impact from organic search and 75%. But when we look at some of the largest marketplaces out there, right, when we talk about an Amazon or an Etsy or an eBay, SEO basically is more or less like if, if you turn off SEO tomorrow, those businesses will die.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, you bring up the term regulated. It's an unregulated world. And so, and I've had on the show and you can listen to previous episodes where I've had on like Neil Patel and Rand Fishkin and even Tim from HRFs, right? And, and it's Tim Solo. And I said, hey, well, will your company, you know, a well-respected, you know, and, you know, Rand was at Moz and, you know, Neil is his own company, Uber Suggests, but then Ahrefs, I was like, would you create a certificate? Would you create a way to regulate the industry? And, and all of them have said no. They just said it's so hard to keep up. And then even SEM Rush, um, Anton, they've created their SEO certificate and it's good, but it's so basic. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, it is very basic, but at least shows that you have some understanding. So they have the SCM Rush Academy certificate. The only one I've seen is out of Ireland called the DMI, Digital Marketing Institute. They have a search marketing certificate. And they've actually done a good job. So I I don't know if you've seen other regulators attempting or had these conversations before, but there seems to be the most respected people I find in SEO are saying no, because it's so hard. And then DMI, I think, is attempting right now.
1: It's funny you bring that up because just last week, there's another podcast I record called Search Party with a couple of other big names in the SEO industry. And we had that same conversation. And I actually think that there might be merit in some sort of a certification. I think you'd have to have some sort of an independent governing body. You know, It's it's always tough when when you try to make an industry certification and it comes from a private company. There should be something like independent, some sort of council, right? And yep. we could think about how that would happen. But I actually do think that there should be some certificate and some sort of a Maybe even a test that yep. we all agree on um, yeah. that that good good SEOs have to pass, and I think that would really raise the reputation of the profession and maybe make everyone smarter. I think there are lots of opportunities that would come from that. I do also think that it would probably take a couple of people working on this full time, yeah. and so I'm always a bit hesitant to propose these things, but then say, "Well, I don't have time to do that." So yeah. good luck, you know. But that's that's I think that is missing in our industry actually.
0: No, because you look at like Hootsuite, and I I don't mind saying that, we're, we're huge fans, we use the product ourselves, but they have an academy, they have a school, it's now they, they're using Thinkific, and then they've tied in with LinkedIn for the certificate, but their social media marketing certificate is the best out there. And actually, for a season, we were still using Sprout Social, mm-hmm. and we're, you know, we, we might even be considering later, right? But I think at the end of the day, they've created that certificate, even though it's branded, you know, because they're a tool and they're a software company, but they had the resources and the time and the energy to do it. Although, you know, would they probably love you to use Hootsuite? Probably, but they made a certificate that is agnostic enough, thankfully. They have another class, of course, that's like, how to use the Hootsuite platform certificate, but they have made it. And so Google's done their certificates, which are free and amazing. Facebook has their blueprints, which there's a price to it. So same thing with Hootsuite, there's a price. So Facebook blueprints, I want to say 150 US. And uh, Hootsuite, I think is 200 US like kind of in that range. But man, for that amount of money, as a hiring employer, knowing that you've gotten all these certs, like I don't care what university college you went to, do you have these universally globally recognized certificates? But yeah, I, the only one I've seen is DMI. And I am curious, they say they have a yeah, advisory board, I think for their entire school, and actually Neil Patel is on it. But I wonder if they have one specifically for that SEO one because that would be cool. Because, yeah, get a guy like Anton on there and Jason Bernard, like some really cool people speaking into that course, knowing there's an exam. And what I love is we've had people come for a job and say, Well, I don't needed those Google certs. I just know it all. You should just see my experience. Well, I said, Well, would you mind taking them just to prove it? Right. And then it shows, you know, are they humble and are they willing to prove that they do know it, not just in their heads and with their track record but just like give us some sort of regulation cuz even a law firm you can never hire someone without a lot, you know you can hire someone with a lottery but you need to hire someone who's passed the bar like right? suits is a great tv example you know what's the guy's name he was running as a lawyer without passing the bar or what, what was it <laughs> you, you know name, the but I, yeah but i i've seen the show i forgot his name or electricians you would never put people on the job who don't have their ticket so i think that's where it's tricky I'm, and i wrestle with that Because I think same thing with mechanics, right? Back in the day, and I don't think they have the reputation anymore, but maybe thanks to YouTube, but you go to mechanic, they'd be like, oh, your Woo is broken and you're going to need a Bot, and that's (laughs) going to be $5,000. And you would just say, okay. But I think, yeah, the more we can lift up the hood and and help people understand, because it is my frustration, and I love that you use the term craft, is that we're part of an industry that is a craft. It's a profession. It's not black art. Yeah, there's
1: this second trend that we can attach to this conversation, which is something that I've been very vocal about on my blog and I've written a lot about, it is that we're living in a trust-mistrust world. There's a good reason for why gig economy startups like Airbnb, like Uber, like Yelp, TripAdvisor and so on, are so sought after these days. And that's because... Trust is an important element when working with anybody or going yeah. even to a restaurant, right? Yeah. Would you trust an Uber driver who has two stars? In fact, there are none because they take them out, they sort them out. Yeah. So it's the same thing on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, right? Verified users. This added element of vetting or of reviews is super important. And I think jobs or professions or crafts that don't traditionally have that need to find ways because, you know, the benefit is that the internet enables pretty much anybody to build a business. The downside is it does enable anybody. Yeah. So there's this thing called the Pollyannish assumption, which basically means that it is foolish to think that people will use a technology like the internet only for good. They will use it to exploit and abuse and do bad things. And so we need to think about how do we create an element of trust. SEO is a profession and an industry that I think has always suffered a little bit under that, but needs to figure it out over time. And I have ideas, right? I'm not sure what the perfect solution is, but it is something that I see bubble up more and more. And I think we need to figure that out.
0: Kevin, I want to hear your explanation. And if you could put it in the form of an analogy, great. If not, how do you explain the difference to people explaining on-site SEO versus off-site SEO?
1: Yeah, it goes back to the most important levers in SEO, right? I gave that example of backlinks before or links from other sites being super important, that is basically off SEO. It has a lot to do with the reputation of your site and the citation of your site, right? If you take a big, big step back on what made Google successful, it was exactly that idea. There's this patent called PageRank, named after Larry Page, that basically outlines how citations from other websites indicate that the site that is cited... Has a certain importance. And it's basically, you know, it's it's not a completely new principle. If you read medical journals or some books, they'll all cite their sources. And so just imagine, you know, the internet scanning all these books and looking at all these citations and then saying, okay, this one canonical book or this one original book is most cited from all these other books. So it must have a certain importance. And that allows us to like sort all the results. That's basically the idea that make Google big, of course, a bit more nuanced these days. So that's the idea of offside. Onsite is basically everything that you do, you know, inside of your house or on your website. That's that's why onsite it has to do with the content you create, how you optimize that content, the part of the code, the speed, the title of your content, how you link between your pieces of content internally, right? So it's not just backlinks from other sites; it's also the links that are internal on your website and linked to other pages on your website. So that's all the stuff that encompasses onsite SEO. And uh, what we've seen over time is a shift from offsite SEO to onsite SEO. So when I started, the two things that you had to do in SEO was you had to have a lot of backlinks, and you had to have a lot of pages in Google's index. Now, how good these pages are, or you know how bad, was not that important. And now it's almost that how good your content is is like the number one decision maker of if you get a lot of traffic or not. And at the same time, we have more. UX or user experience factors, like how fast it loads, how pretty it looks, you know, how easy it is to navigate, and so on and so
0: on. So again, not to put you out, I mean, claim you to this number, but percentage-wise, if you were to break it out out of a hundred, what percentage would you put towards on-site versus off-site? Just throwing a number out there.
1: You know, but with all the kind of caveats, I would say like maybe twenty-five percent off-site, seventy-five percent on-site. The only kind of caveat that I do want to call out is that there are differences from industry to industry. So there are still some industries, say like financial industry, where off-site might still have a bigger importance. And say in like the travel industry, on-site might have a, a much larger importance. And there are studies that help us understand these differences. But basically what Google says, or what Google does is say, hey, if somebody searches for a term on Google that's related to finance, insurance, medical. We want to make sure that we serve results that have a high degree of authority that are cited a lot and have high quality citations in the right context from other sites. And in something like travel, that might be, it might be a little bit different. So there are nuances, but I'd say like a 25, 75% is,
0: is probably fair. Okay. Kevin, I'm going to tell you a story and I want you to find some holes in my analogy. Is that okay? Sure. I'll put you on the spot. I'm going I'm to tell an analogy that I've been using and I want you to be like Darian... You've got some holes, or you're missing this part. Is that okay? It's my specialty. <laughs> okay. Have you seen the 2000 classic Mean Girls with Lindsay Lohan? I I don't think so. Okay. So it's a teeny bopper movie, maybe kind of, you know, call it a comedy drama. Maybe I don't I don't know if it's a drama, teen drama, probably not, more of a comedy. But uh, I think it was actually written by Tina Fey, who wrote it, wow. who went on to write 30 Rock and star in Saturday Night Live. But it's a, the whole premise is it's a group of really mean, judgmental girls in high school. So I'll often compare Google to a really mean judgmental girl at a high school. So I'll say, if you think of Google like that, leaning against Google's locker, and as your website walks by, Google is doing two things. So Google is looking at your website up and down and doing one of these up and down things and looking at what brand names are on your clothes, what's in your journal that you're holding, what your hairstyle is like, you know, how nice you are to look at, how fast you walk. And that's, one of the ways Google is looking and judging your website, Mean Girl Google. And then the second thing Google is doing as you walk down the hallway is who is talking to you in the hallway and what are they talking to you about? So as you walk down the hallway and everyone says Brooklyn or Boston cat sweaters, you probably know a lot about Boston cat sweaters. They're looking at your Google you know, Google review, you know, what everyone's saying to you. And then they're also looking at to say, how cool is that person who's talking to you? What sort of authority do they have in the high school? So if you've bought like, 50 people, sketchy people to say hi to you in the hallway, you're probably a sketchy person. But if that one really cool person talks to you, like Globe and Mail or you know, USA Today links to you and says hi to you, you're probably a pretty cool person. And so those are the two ways I use as an analogy to describe offsite to site. So <laughs> Kevin, over to you. Where are the holes? Where am I leading people astray in this analogy? And wh- where, 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 how can I do better?
1: I love everything about that. I'll certainly add Mean Girl Google to my vocabulary from now on and give you credit every time I I mention that. I think the only thing that I might add to that is, do you speak about things that you know a lot about or do you just pretend to know a lot about them? There's there's this concept that Google has promoted and it will stir a little bit of of an outrage, even just when you say the name. There's a concept of EAT, which stands for expertise, trustworthiness, and authoritativeness. And I'm saying it will cause a lot of outrage because... A lot of SEOs love to point out that it's not this, it's it's an end result or an outcome that Google yeah. aims for, but it's not in itself an algorithm or a thing, right? Yeah. So yeah. with that out of the way, totally acknowledge that. But Google aims to serve more results that come from expert resources, right? Which just makes yeah. perfect sense. It's it's not something that will surprise you, but that was not always the case. So in 2016, there was a big scandal, I think. The Guardian uh, revealed that, or maybe the BBC, not sure exactly, or don't remember. But there was a UK newspaper that basically surfaced some results about the Holocaust that were very untrustworthy, like like not good results at all. Caused a big outrage, a big stir in the community. And that set up a whole chain of events at Google to place a higher emphasis on trustworthy, and expert results, right? It was the same time, by the way, that you know, Donald Trump was voted into office in the US. Fake news became a term that everybody knew about, right? So, And also, blockchain and crypto was something that came up, right? So that's so why I talked about this kind of, this trust, mistrust world, and I probably have to find a better name for it. But this is something that has been in the making for the last five years on many different aspects in our society. And one of them is Google search results. And so ever since... Google has really put in a lot of work to surface more trustworthy results. And that's why they're getting better at understanding if the content you put out there or the topics that the high school girl talks about, if she really knows something about these topics or if she just pretends because she has read some headlines on the internet.
0: so is that why Google loves articles for some reason? And, and maybe this is just a season, right? I sometimes explained like Google goes for a season of what Google loves. But like when you use the term versus or best, like 10 best or versus, like Google seems to love those pieces.
1: Yes. And I think humans love these pieces too. Uh, that is, I think it's a, it's a big part of the user journey, right? So basically, best way to understand this concept of user or buyer journey is that Every search on Google is basically an attempt to solve a problem, right? I like yeah, to think yeah. of it in terms of problems. And so sometimes this problem is very small and the user yeah. journey is short. Say like, what's the weather today? Type in weather, you get the weather in your location right away, problem solved. Yeah. Sometimes it takes much, much longer. So there's a study that Google published on their market research blog called Think with Google. But they showed that when people book trips, they have up to 800 different searches and interactions with Google. Tons of interactions, right? And that that is spread across desktop and mobile. So it's not, you know, like there's a whole red tail of problems attached to that for us marketers. But people are on this journey and they they, they search on Google to to solve some steps along that. And so a big part of most user journeys is, to compare different offers and products. We're super easy on the internet, right? And so that's where all these
0: verses and best queries come from. And that's in part where they're so important. We, this is kind of a, more it's fun now anecdotally, but I'm like, it's not great for my business, but almost a third of our web traffic still to date, and it spikes every summer is in America. I think you're in America right now. You have a drink called White Claw. Actually created, I don't know if you know, created by a Canadian who also created Mike's Hard Lemonade and has a winery in Kelowna called Mission Hill. Wow. So and and the winery is nicknamed the house that Mike built because it's the most beautiful winery that was funded mostly by Mike's Hard Lemonade. Wow. But you couldn't get, ironically, you couldn't get White Claw in Canada. And so right in the Lower Mainland, two companies emerged almost in the same month. One was called Nude Vodka Soda. one was called Neutral Vodka Soda. And the, the cans looked exactly the same. The flavors were almost the same. They're both from the Lower Mainland. So it was very confusing. And so I decided to write a piece with, with a friend that said nude versus neutral. And that summer, almost 5,000 unique visitors would come to our site searching for that. Because I guess, also anecdotally, it's something people search all the time because it was very confusing in the market. But even now, looking back and studying our analytics to see what people search for, it's like the most random blogs that we've written, or it's our listicles, like you know things that where we've compared. So I want to know, because of writing that stuff, what do you think is the impact of people also ask? Because I've noticed that Google will actually not even send people to your website anymore. You'll just see it appear and people also ask. And you can just kind of preview the article or read the chunk of the article before you go to the website.
1: The impact is huge. Yeah. I was very lucky to get access to a large data set of over 1,200 of the largest domains on the web, over 100,000 keywords over the last three years, to really investigate into exactly that question. People also ask, is one of the many SERP features that Google displays. I call them SERP features. Search engine results page acronym. Exactly. Those that are, yeah. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Thanks for writing that. And Google basically augments the search results more and more to give people faster answers. Yeah. An example for that is Google Maps, that you see for a lot of yes. key terms, some ads, image carousels, videos, yeah. right? So Google, that has completely changed over the last 10 years. Yeah. And people also asked, or PPA, uh, sorry, yeah. PAA, as we call it. That's a big one that Google shows more and more. Uh, I looked into the data and shows more and more across different markets. So it's not just the US or Germany or the UK. It's like a lot of markets. And that is a linear increase over the last three years that I've noticed. And not only that, there's also something to be said about the position where Google shows PAAs. And that has also increased. So Google tends to. Sometimes or very often now showed under the first result, the first organic result that is. Yeah. And that has huge implications on oh, yeah. sites. There, there, were, there were terms that basically get, you know, 10% or less of traffic before and after Google started to show a PAA simply because it catches people in their attention flow on the search results page. And yeah. it really hits the questions that people have. And uh, as SEOs, we're only slowly building the tools to understand PAAs better and how to appear in them. It's a huge part of everybody's SEO strategy. Hopefully,
0: yeah. So I'm I'm in a um, you know Vancouver Langley IP. I Google Shopify versus WooCommerce. WP Beginner is the first blog that shows up from 2019, and then it jumps right into People Also Ask. And then there's two more sites, you know, after that. And then there's a Shopify blog. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see that yeah, the, the order, right? And 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 you know, what can you do? Cause I think that's a probably a versus thing, right? Shopify versus Squarespace shopping or Shopify. I mean, you probably know them all in your head that you're like having and working to master and try to work with. Yeah. If we have to change that
1: order, and we've been putting actually quite some work into these versus pages, but you know, the, the thing is that questions and answers are a substantial part of search engines and have been for a long, long time. It's yeah. not necessarily a new concept, but what is new is that Google is getting so much better at understanding what are the most important questions that people have and yeah. what are the best results. And so it becomes yeah. almost a a SERP in a SERP, right? Like a search results page in a search results page because the PAA is an accordion that you can click on the first one, it will expand, and then you make a decision to go on a click-through to that site. But you can also open the second question or the third question. And that introduces a lot of noise. And that's why I earlier said that SEO is changing over time. This is not something that we have seen maybe three years ago, four years ago. And that's something you have to stay on top of. And so as a marketer, or even as a non-marketer, what that means for us, first of all, is... Constant change, right? So you need to be a constant learner and constantly get on top of these things. But two, also, that we are not living in the world anymore where we just have 10 blue links or 10 results for a search term. We are in part competing with Google too, right? And whether yeah. that means that Google simply steers attention to another site or keeps it on its own sites, that's a that's a separate question. But that landscape and that dynamic of content publishers and Google has changed over the last years.
0: Wow! And so for you, and and I don't know if you're able to share some of them, but where do you go for like new learnings? Or or where do you go to like stay on top of? Again, I'm going to use it for now. And and hopefully when we talk maybe in six months or a year, this term has changed, but an unregulated, really certified industry. But right, DMI, this is a shout out to you. Create a really cool specifics SEO advisory council. And I think we'll all be really pushing your DMI certificate. That's just a caveat. I hope you're listening. But jumping back to this, where do you go personally to, to get inspiration ideas, uh, knowledge?
1: There are a couple of avenues. Yeah. One of them is talking to other professionals in the field. Yeah. I think because SEO is so heavy on reverse engineering, trial and error, talking to peers is so important. In fact, SEO would not be a profession today without people sharing what they learned. It is yeah. crucial, fundamental. I remember, like first of all, I learned, luckily from you know great people early on that helped yeah. me really catapult my career and boost it. But I remember going to meetups the first month that I started yeah. that job because it's so fundamental to learn from other people. And so I have a network of people that I regularly talk to and we share results, we exchange yeah. notes. And I, I want to urge everybody to to build that network. The second thing is basically learning on the job, right? So we run yeah. a constant stream of experiments. In fact, I have a whole team in my SEO organization that only runs experiments the whole time. Amazing. And so this experimentation culture, it is important to me that this is in our DNA and that we think critically. And it's funny because if you will see that if you say if you replicate the same experiment, say a year later or two, you might come to a different result, right? So that's yeah. that constant learning is one thing. And then lastly, I, I do you know, follow quite a lot of blogs, people on Twitter. I have a feed reader. I use Pocket to save articles. So I constantly try
0: to keep a pulse on what's being published and what's being talked about. Okay. Yeah, it's funny. I often get asked like, hey, is it harder to do SEO on different platforms? right? Like, do you need to use WordPress? Like, can you do SEO for Squarespace? Can you do SEO for Wix? That's often a common question, but I, you know, I'll often, you know, I don't have a specific answer because I think, you know, everyone's their own thing, but it's like, yeah, the the difference of onsite versus offsite and those tools that enable you to do onsite for their platforms. And so it's, uh, for those that are on Shopify, of course, it has some amazing features, SEO features. And again, let's not forget about offsite, which again, has nothing to do with the platform uh, agnostic.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And there's this kind of, this. I don't want to say, it's not a new pillar, but it's a pillar that's growing in importance that could technically be part of Offside. And that's this pillar of brand. Yeah. Google wants to rank known brands higher. There is a brand bonus.
0: Yeah.
1: The easiest way to check that is just to search for a book and attach the word Amazon to it, and you will certainly mm. see Amazon results. Yeah. And that's because there is a, a brand bonus. And so just building a business, building a brand, being visible, is very powerful and the way that this manifests in a tangible way is people searching for exactly these brand combination keywords something like online store shopify yeah if a lot of people search for that on google that's a strong signal to google that shopify and the keyword online store are probably you know there's probably a connection there so yeah. by doing good offsite things you know by getting your brand out there by having a great product maybe even by advertising building a community building advocates you you build a brand, and it's a bit of a meta thing or a bit of a fuzzy thing, but it does have an impact
0: on SEO as well. I love when I discovered that even Google, like again, trying to get more evidence, not just based on you know they're not going to give onus to the good coders, but they look at the reviews. Yeah. Like, does the people who review you in Google Maps or Map Packs or Google My Business, whatever you want to call it? Remember Google Plus back in the day? The reviews, do they mention your product? Did they mention the city you're in? And so even the impact that has.
1: Yes, absolutely. Google tries to get that holistic view and there's always a, a quantitative side of things and a qualitative side, right? And so by reviewing businesses, I've I've worked for a review side, which is G2 and they review software, right?
0: Yeah, I know G that yeah,
1: it's huge. And yeah, it's huge. It's 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 huge and there's a lot happening there. And so we saw some cases where Google would pull our reviews into some of these SERP features to help you know, make people better decisions. And and so yeah. we don't know exactly how Google looks at reviews, if they really factor the, say, star rating of a business into its ranking. But we do know that Google uses some reputable
0: sources to inform its algorithms to some degree. Yeah. And those that are in agency life, especially in Canada, UpCity and Clutch, kind of have, being that they're listicle sites and listing sites, we can't beat them. Like they will always somehow hold a place on the first page of Google. So it's either you either beat them or join them. And so I know a, an SEO agent here in Vancouver tried to create, and I think they're still trying to create a, a listing site, right? And which is smart, own it. But I don't know, it's, you know, battling against clutch and up city is going to be a hard, hard battle.
1: Yeah, it takes a long time. Again, being, being on that site for quite a while, the review space is super competitive. And yet yeah. at the same time, you already pointed out that Google wants these types of sites. I think that is true. What we've noticed is that for a lot of terms, Google has a reserves a certain number of slots of ranking positions in the search results for a certain type of site. So let me explain to you what that means. Let's take a term like CRM software, customer relationship management software, really, really important for a lot of B2B companies to manage their relationships with the customers, track them, monitor them. And so it's a really important term for G2 as well. And what we noticed is that there are three types of sites that Google wants to display for this term. One, the review sites, right? Like G2 or like a Capterra, for example, or Gartner. Two, the brands like HubSpot or like a Salesforce. And then three, publishers like a PC Mag or other sites like that. And so the reality is that as SEOs and as businesses, the number of slots might be more limited than you think, right? You think, hey, there are 10 results, you know, we want to capture one of them. But in reality, Google might only reserve three slots or four slots for your type of sites. So that's another kind of layer that we need to put on top of planning and measuring success.
0: Yeah, but it's funny. Uh Anton, I'm going to say his last name is Shulky, who uh, is at SEM Rush. He actually sent me a screenshot last week cuz we this show is on Marketing News Canada, and if you google now who is Anton Shulky, our description is pulled, you know, his bio is pulled from our news site, which is pretty awesome. So he was like, "Thank you for this. I this is yeah, <laughs> this, this is this is who I am. This is great." <laughs> So question for you, as you're doing the work you're doing, as you're watching the stuff with Shopify, what's your biggest advice for shop owners and those that are looking to ramp up their SEO for their, their Shopify store?
1: The biggest advice is to think about all the different layers and aspects of content on your site. I think it kind of encapsulates pretty much everything we've been talking about for the last 40 minutes. And it comes back to there are different types of content on different parts of your website. And you want to try to master them as good as possible. So here's what I mean. Most people think about the blog when it comes to content. And yeah. we've seen merchants do amazing things with the blog. One example that comes to mind, and I do want to point out that I'm not endorsing a single merchant, right? There are many yes. great yeah. examples. It's just one that I'm picking right now. Yeah, yeah. No. Which great. is the Bullet Journal. They yeah. have a blog that ranks for many terms, non-brand terms, on position number one. And what they did is they first of all interviews with thought leaders in their space like a Cal Newport who's a big advocate of minimalism and they had him on the blog for an interview i think 4 years ago or something like that and that's still ranks number 1 for a lot of minimalism and journal related non-brand keywords. And the second thing is that they write a lot of guides and tutorials. So how do I journal every day? What, what kind of, what are prompting questions? What are elements of a journal? Fits really well to the product and it drives a lot of organic traffic. It's like this perfect introduction to their product, right? So that's one area and aspect of content. But then there's also the content on your product page. And you have to think about it a little differently. We, we spoke about reviews. You certainly... Want to have and show reviews on your product page, but you also want to think about all the different questions that people might have. I always think about product page content as in, like, what is good customer service in the offline world, right? If if I walk into a store and you know people are like, hey, this by the way, these are newest products, or you have a question about these sneakers, like, yeah, you know, this and that. How can I reflect all of that on my product page? Most often in the form of Q and A, questions and answers, right? So I do think it pays off. Quite a lot to think about all the different questions, customize the questions per product, right? People might have different questions. Like, just think about white sneaker versus black sneaker. Like, how dirty does this thing get? How easy is it to wash, right? These are product specific questions. And a mistake that I see a lot of merchants make is they just copy paste all the questions and answers across all the different products. And that's not not the most helpful, even though some of them might recur or occur more more and more often. Then, last thing is the product description yeah I think right. that's another one where you can put in a lot more effort to like really describe the product on a deep level, the material, what it looks like, things like duration, uh, robustness, all these kind of things. So I would put a lot of work and effort into product description. If you are a reseller, the worst thing you can do is just copy paste the product description from the manufacturer because that's what everybody else has.
0: yeah, no, that makes sense. I was going to say that your the story you give is so great. So my older brother and I. Both have the same condition. We've grown up, I actually have two older brothers, but my just one of the brothers has this condition where we have very sweaty armpits. So it's called hypohydrolysis. And ironically, my brother has it in his right armpit. I have it in my left. I only have it in one armpit. And so all growing up in high school, we all wore like two t-shirts. And when I had to wear a shirt, I wore a suit jacket over top of it. And I'd always have to replace my jackets every six months or so because it would smell so bad. And so my brother went on to become a doctor. And so I said, all right, Ty, your number one job as a doctor is to find out what to do with our armpits. And I was like, sure, help people, but help us, man. So finally, he came back after much research and said, Darian, we have one solution. And I was like, what are we doing? He goes, we got to get Botox injected into our armpits. And he says, it's painful, it's expensive, and it might not even last that long. So I was like, man, he goes, I can't give you any other medical answer. I was like, you're not a very good doctor, Tyler, but I love you, and it's great. So I went on, so I Google searched, though. Finally, one night, I was like, okay, I think I got I Google search. Botox treatment in the armpits. Right? I just Googled it to figure out what do people say about reviews. And the first article talked about all the pros and cons of Botox and, armpits, and a lot of pros. And here's all the cons. And then the bottom of it was, or consider getting a Thompson tee. And I realized I was on a website for a t-shirt for, is for, for people's sweaty armpits. And so I, it was a t-shirt that had pads in the armpits. So I ordered one money back guarantee, changed my life. I've never worried or needed. So I actually, I think I take my shirt off at the end of the night, undershirt, and it's really heavy in one armpit. And I told my brother about it. I've ordered 10 more of them. Anytime I interview someone and I notice they have, we call it moon pits, kind of in us, our community of sweaty armpit people. I'm like, dude, I gotta tell you about this Thompson Tees, man. And I've probably told maybe 30, 40 people about it. But if you Google their Google search find, it was amazing because they provided something of value teaching and educating me about Botox.
1: That is so powerful. Thanks for sharing yeah. that, Darian. Because it's such a great example of people dealing with real problems. And if you have a yeah. product that solves that, that problem, you, you yeah. know, like you can build a fantastic business that brings money and purpose. And yeah. uh, I think you know, I think that's the world that we're living in. We, you can you can do that wherever you live in the world. And if you're able to to understand all the different problems that people are dealing with, you can. Reflect that in your content. There's nothing more powerful yeah. you can do. Because reality is that problems have a different degree of pain or a different pain level, yeah. better said, right? Yeah. So obviously, you know, something like sweaty armpits, huge problem that you want to solve. So your yeah. willingness to try things out is much, much greater. But if you as yeah. a business owner who sells specific t-shirts to solve that problem, right? If you don't address that connection, right? If you don't attack these keywords, there's no way for you to get these customers. Or it's going to be really, really hard at least, right? Yeah. So that's the difference of SEO 15 years ago or 10 years ago and today. It's like to say, okay, today, it's, what is the best way that we can go after customers' problems? 10 years ago, it was like, how can we exploit
0: this loophole in some algorithm? And I think I use the term, there's, there's two kind of sayings. One is like, you know, keep your friends close your enemies closer. So be okay to write about your enemies, your competition on your site, or, you know, know thy enemy. Right? Is the old saying, right? It's an old war saying, but it's like, know everything about them and then write about it, right? And bring them close to home. Yeah.
1: And there's so many different angles to come at this too, right? There is a whole journey where maybe at first, maybe you're not even aware of the condition that you have and what it's called and what's implied and why it's because we want to address all of that in your content and create specific content for that and then slowly but surely guide people in the direction of the solution, which is your product.
0: Yeah. So Kevin, I have another analogy that I want you to find holes in. That was great. That's great feedback on, yeah, does that high school person actually know what she's talking about and w- with depth? okay. One more analogy. So if you've ever been over to a friend's house and they have children, you sometimes maybe think, oh, I haven't seen them, why well, I should bring a gift for the children. Or maybe I'm going to bring food and I'm going to bring not just candy because that would get the parents frustrated because they're all hyped up before bed because I'm coming for dinner. But I'll bring like broccoli, but done in a really cool way, like broccoli brownies or cauliflower, Popsicles, whatever it is. And I'm going to bring it, I'm going to feed my friends' kids this really great, healthy food with substance, right? Nutrition and vitamins. And the parents are going to look at me and they're going to really like me and think, wow, thank you for feeding my children and bringing food over to our house. So I'll often say the reason you want to be on YouTube and investing in YouTube is that Google bought YouTube years ago. So YouTube is, in a sense, like Google's child, second largest search engine in the world. So be feeding it with great content because then Google will look fondly upon you. So Give it your critique, Kevin.
1: No, it's 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 a great analogy. It goes back to one thing that we marketers sometimes forget, and that is how Google makes money. At the end of the day, Google is a business with a responsibility not just to its users, but also its shareholders. Oftentimes, those two responsibilities are aligned. Sometimes they're not, and there's a big dependency that I've written a lot of articles about, which is Google's dependency on ad revenue. Over eighty percent of Alphabet's total revenue, that doesn't just include Google, also includes YouTube, Waymo, uh, a couple of other companies, comes from ads, comes from Google ads. And so that is a blessing and a, and a curse at the same time. Blessing because it made Google one of the most successful startups in the world. They show a consistent twenty percent year over year growth, no matter what happens. So I think there was yeah. one time that they undershot that, and I think it was uh, it might have been the two thousand eight recession or maybe maybe the pandemic. Most recently, I don't remember which one it was. At the same time, right? It's a curse because you know people get more frustrated with ads. the different problems with ads. You know, we don't need to go too deep into those, but. Uh, Reality is that Google also tries to step back from ads. So you see it on YouTube, for example, but they push the subscription much, much harder than actual ads because ads are disruptive and so on. Yeah. But so what that means is that you know I I, we spoke earlier uh, that that Google tries to sometimes keep people in the search results to show them more ads because there's only so many ways to grow your ad revenue. You basically got to squeeze more out of it, and that comes at the cost of the users and comes at the cost of the content creators. So I think the anal- analogy is good. And I think at the same time, so like a quick, quick kind of addendum or addition to that analogy would be that those friends, they buy more and more broccoli and get it shipped home directly to feed it to their kids without you coming over to do that. right? So there is a certain element of competition from Google, maybe even you know, from Alphabet as a whole, to creators of content to the publishers. And that's something that's worrying a lot of people because the yeah. future of that is uncertain. So the, the reason for why I'm saying that, it's, a, it's really quickly, um, because Google gets so much better at machine learning, they might be, I think, after Microsoft, or maybe maybe even before Microsoft, the company that drives machine learning and artificial forward the most. Yeah. Uh, and so they have tons of, of patents and open sourcing software and all these kind of things, and this new technology that they're building. And the fear is that Google might get good enough to make websites redundant and give people the answer themselves, similar to how the fear with Uber is that they develop yeah. a self-driving technology that makes the drivers themselves redundant. Yeah. How close to that we are, hard yeah. to say, right? I think there's also yeah. an aspect of regulation and like governmental regulation yeah. and so on. But reality is that there is a certain element of competition from Google itself.
0: Yeah. Although, listen to Revisionist History, New Season 6, Episode 1, Malcolm and his producer partner are in, I want to say Florida or Austin, somewhere where they have self-driving Ubers. Yes. I heard that. Yes. The whole episode is based around the critique and the investigation is, will these self-driving Uber type vehicles, I can't remember the name, but Moby, Mobley, he kept saying it actually, like I'm so proud of you. And, um, <laughs> and he like, they threw beach balls at it. Malcolm is a runner. So he ran beside one. Like it's it's a great, great episode.
1: Yeah. Um, I love Malcolm Gladwell. Huge fan, huge fan. Yeah. And uh, it, it's funny because I listened to just that episode, I think two or three weeks ago. And the, the yeah. conclusion to that is also interesting, which is that right now, there is a basically, like people will not run on the street because they know that the drivers might just run over them because they don't yeah. see or don't anticipate, anticipate yeah. that. Self-driving cars become so good at anticipating things that... This will turn the thing around. Whereas a pedestrian, you might know this car will stop to oh, yeah. start to behave in a very irrational way. And right? so yeah. I wonder, you know, if, if Google is able to give more answers itself, what will that do to you know web creators and content publishers and all that kind of stuff? It's a very interesting question to ponder about. However, to tie all of that back to e-commerce and to merchants and to all these different trends that we tackled on, I think, you know, we talked about content and, and so on. Brand, what we haven't talked about is this direct relationship with your customers. And I think whatever happens, whatever channel rises or falls apart or you know, capitalizes more on ads and squeezes publishers out more, whatever happens, the more of a direct relationship with your customers you have, and the healthier that relationship is, the more resilient are you against these black swans or these bad events that could happen at some point in time in the future.
0: That's awesome. Kevin? Thank you for coming here. Thank you for joining the show for, uh, for an episode.
1: Thanks for having me. This was amazing. You're a great storyteller, uh, and I enjoyed every second here.
0: Where can people find you if they want to uh, reach out or, or, or follow you or you know get connected?
1: Yeah, I, I blog weekly on my site, kevin-indig.com. There's also a newsletter attached to it. Over 5,000 people by now, very engaged. And then I have a, which is called The Growth Memory. You introduced that in the beginning. Thank you very much. And then I have my own podcast called Tech Bound. Uh, it's also a YouTube channel where I talk to some of the best minds in growth and how they work. And then I'm also very active on Twitter, Kevin underscore Indic.
0: Amazing. Kevin, thank you again. Such a pleasure. We'll have to do another episode, I want to say in six months to eight, six, eight months to kind of find out about what's happening with regulations and certificates. Because I think if you're okay with that, I'm going to invite you right now to say like you and I can try. We're not going to create it, but we're going to see if we can try to push that forward in some small way. And maybe it is the Irish DMI Maybe it's them. Maybe maybe they figured it out and we just need to get around it and rally behind it. I'm game. Yeah, I'm game. Let's do that. Thank you for joining us for another week of Marketing News Canada. And we'll see you next time on the show. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and the
3: Podfather